This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice and all the latest developments in human resource management. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum, and joining me on this episode is Elvin Turner, Executive Innovation Coach over at Elvin Turner and Associates Limited, a consultancy specializing in organizational and people innovation and culture change. Elvin is also an MBA Associate Lecturer, teaching innovation and entrepreneurship at the University of Surrey. Elvin's experience extends from working with tech startups to coaching seasoned leadership teams. His latest book is Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership and Passionate People, which was a finalist in the Business Book Awards in 2021. Hey, Elvin, welcome to the HR in Review show today. Thanks, Bill. It's really great to be here. So, Elvin, you work with leaders looking to reinvigorate their organizations. Maybe you can start by talking to me a bit about some of the typical scenarios or early stage conversations that you have with senior leaders about their fear that their organization is is losing that ability to innovate. Yeah, well, it, it normally starts in one or one of two ways. So the first will be I walk into an executive's office and uh, this actually happened word for word once. Um, a CEO said, listen, I, I, I know you're here to sell me something, but look, 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 let me just tell you really what I need here. Don't tell me why we need to innovate. Don't tell me what we need to innovate. Just tell me how. It just keeps slipping through our fingers. You know, we shout at people, we tell people to get on with it, and it just never seems to happen. We appoint a head of innovation, and within a year, we're having to fire them because it's not working. You know, what's the how of innovation is, is really the first thing. And the, the second one is, it feels like it's a problem with permission. So classically, the exec will say, what's wrong with people? You know, I've given people permission to come up with big ideas. I'm putting out a call for more big, bolder ideas and no one's doing anything. We've got this creativity crisis on our hands. And I've learned that that's rarely the case. It's not it's not a crisis of creativity. It's a crisis of context, because if I put my hand up and suggest a bold idea, I've got everything to lose in most situations. If, if my boss, well, firstly, if people don't laugh me out of the building for proposing something original, that's a bonus, but it's unlikely. Secondly, if I put my hand up and say, boss, I've got this idea, what do you think? And they say, yes, I've just given myself a new evening job, another evening job, because there's no time to do it during the day. And the third thing is, even if I do find the time to do it, it's very unlikely to work in this place because we just can't innovate. And so I'm just putting my head on the block and putting my bonus at risk, my promotion at risk, my reputation at risk, because it's probably going to fail. Why would I put forward a bold idea? So when those those um, those calls for, for bolder creativity come forward, most people just duck because they know it's not worth it. It's not worth their while. So th- those are often the entry points a frustration around not being able to switch it on and keep it switched on. And the second one is, how do you flush people out? How do you get people to have the confidence to bring ideas? Um, and, and how do we build the context around that? HR in Review is a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. You can subscribe at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast or find us on your podcast app. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. So you talk a lot about building a systems approach to, to company innovation. Um, let, let, let's start there. What, what is a systems approach to innovation? Well, 
if you think about what innovation is, it's really cha designed change. It's looking for you know, suggestions of what's coming from the future, weak signals that are coming from the future that sooner or later are going to disrupt what we do and how we do it, whether it's us, our competitors, the, you know, the whole market. And, and so innovation is really an argument with the status quo. And that means at every opportunity, the status quo is going to try and shut down anything new because it, it is an inconvenience. It slows things down. It's not predictable, or at least you know. So we so so we think. So if we are not deliberate, and that's the key word here, about creating um, a context in which innovation can show up, the status quo will overrun it every single time because there's there's no space for for it to show up. So what I often say to organisations is, look. There's nothing mysterious about how you set up innovation. It's no different in many respects to how you set up finance or marketing or logistics or any other function that we're deliberate about, any other function that has to show up and perform well in order to deliver the value it's there to deliver. We have processes in finance which we follow and they work. Um, finance has certain capabilities that need to be in place which if you don't have them, people can't do their job, or at least they do it, you know, not, not quite so well. And for some reason, when it comes to innovation, we, we don't think as strategically about it. We don't think about what needs to be true in order for innovation to show up professionally. So processes, capabilities, resources, the culture that's needed, and then the leadership that's needed, if we're deliberate about each of those and put them in place and measure them, and um, reward them in the same way that we do any other function, there's no reason why innovation can't show up inside any organization and be successful. But the key where it all starts is about being deliberate. And usually we're not, we're less a fair about innovation. We kind of hope that it will show up because we ask people to do new things. And then we're surprised when people say, well, I don't have time. We don't have the capabilities. We don't have the resources. It sounds like excuses when actually it's the cold reality of trying to do new things in the context of the status quo which actually set up not to embrace new things so it's all about being deliberate really if you enjoy the hr and review podcast please consider giving us a five-star rating in itunes or in your podcast app of choice this helps others find us and grow our community of hr and related professionals and it's about i guess uh, giving people a safe space um, to 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 feel like they you know they they can focus on um, ways to innovate and 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 connecting with new people within an organisation perhaps to help them do so and so on and so forth. Although we're going to get into that later on. Um, for now, I want to talk to you a little bit about how specifically you help managers. Um, my understanding is that you you help managers to develop the skills and capabilities to encourage innovation. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, well, I guess I'd split it into two, well, maybe even three. Let's split it into three. The first is leaders um, and helping them understand their role in creating that deliberate context for innovation to show up. What, you know, what outcomes does innovation need to deliver? Here's our strategy. Usually strategy has a, has a stretch in it. If we just keep doing what we're doing today, we're not going to reach that stretch. There's always change or more or new built into strategy to some extent or another whether it's about what we do or how we do it it demands more and better so something needs to be different in what we do so that helps you understand there's our innovation agenda um, 
and then being deliberate as a leader about how we create that context. And I see it myself as the key sponsor for ensuring that context is in place. Otherwise, we're kidding ourselves. Innovation just can't show up. It's also for leaders about even if we've got a great innovation plan in place, sooner or later, a fire will land on our desks which risks pushing innovation off and then it never comes back in my experience so making those decisions about is this important enough to stop this piece of innovation that we're working on that actually is an investment in our future does this matter enough versus the fire on the desk our knee-jerk reaction is usually solve the immediate problem because we we like the short-term rewards and metrics that we put in place they, they they're always louder and more important so for me, that's that's about the context, the leader protecting the context in which to do that and helping them see the cause and effect of themselves on the innovation performance um, rather than a kind of a you know casual bystander. Is you've got to get in there. You, you have to. And, and teaching, you know, many leaders that I meet have never really had any decent innovation training. It's just because of their by virtue of their position, they're, they're expected to know this by kind of osmosis. And it's, it's a very different skill set to running an effective, efficient status quo organization. So that's leaders. I guess then managers, there's all sorts of things you can bring their way. But for me, I think the most valuable thing you can do is help them look at it at a team level. So here's our here's the strategy. Out of that strategy come our, our priorities as a team. What won't happen unless we innovate? What won't happen in these objectives unless we do things differently? There's your innovation agenda. Now let's turn that into some projects and plans. And that's the key word there, plan. Make it every day. So every month we're checking out our plan. What are we doing in the next quarter? Who's working on it? What are the outcomes? We keep it moving forward. We have it on our weekly meeting. We're just talking about it all the time. Some of this isn't rocket science, but we we don't actually make space for it to show up um, in a very specific way and a continual way. And it's not just about what we're innovating at a team level either. It's it's the how. What's the context? So What's communication needs are we going to have for this piece of innovation to work or this project? What trust are we going to need in this team? How much time are we going to need and how are we going to create that time? So again, it's just about being real about what needs to innovate to deliver to li- deliver our goals and what context are we going to need and how are we going to co-create that together and, and putting it into a plan. And I guess the final thing is then day-to-day, you know, rank and file employees, what are we teaching them? And I found that teaching them the basics of um, the flow of innovation. So how to identify great insight, how to turn that into a brilliant differentiated question that then sparks original ideas and then testing those ideas before we put too much um, too much resource behind them because many of them won't, won't be the right ideas. And then how do we scale and integrate with the business? And there's um, the, the, the I found that when you focus on those three areas, it really moves the needle around innovation performance at a people level. Follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Join the conversation at HR in Review today. Okay, wonderful. That was a very comprehensive answer there, Alvin. Thank you very much. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about those employees, though, if you don't mind. Um, So we've we've instilled all these lessons at the at the sea level and at the management level uh talk a little bit more if you don't mind about how that then trickles down to employees how how can a better grasp specifically of, of ways to foster innovation at the manager and sea level impact the wider workforce impact that company culture so that you know the the employees on the ground so to speak feel inspired and feel like they've got 
the the tools, the resources, the support to innovate? Well, what I've found is that this kind of moves in seasons or eras, if you like. There's there's good intention season, which is we get the strategy, we get everything aligned, we tell people we're serious about this, we we release people at team level to go and make it happen. Um, and everyone's excited and they're encouraged that finally we're going to be given the opportunity to solve these problems or pursue these opportunities that we've wanted to do for a long time. And then, and that's great. And that enthusiasm can last for a while. But what tends to happen is innovation, that, that innovation launch, if you like, is, has a sort of campaign feel to it. And over time, it gradually fades in. Um, the amount that it's talked about, the amount that it's measured, the amount that it really shows up. And we kind of collectively forget about its importance because something else new comes along. You know, there's a new um, diversity and inclusion thing, which is now the new thing. And then, you know, there'll be something around, you know, digital, which we're going to look at. And it's it's the campaign mentality that we often have inside organizations that creates change fatigue and causes important things to fall off the radar. So I think what I've seen work well inside organizations is to keep that flywheel, keep that engine moving at the heart of it. It's the executive's job to make it matter. And, and thinking about every time we are tempted to stop making this a priority, both at our level, you know, in our own board meetings, or we stop paying attention to the metrics of what's coming through from innovation at, at, a, at a team level, we're really choosing to shrink tomorrow. And we're allowing today to step back in and we, we, we're opting for a smaller tomorrow or at least a more vulnerable tomorrow, because the ideas that tomorrow needs us to come up with today have suddenly been put on hold. And so I think with leaders um, defining what role innovation needs to play in strategy delivery and then funneling that down to a team level objective and then holding teams to account is one thing, but then, as I said earlier, make sure that they play their role in being a dependency on innovation showing up. And I think it's a really healthy thing to do to help leaders um, to ask the question, um, you know, where does innovation die or fly because of me? What's the cause and effect of me on innovation on a day-to-day, -day, on a monthly basis? And really look for feedback on that because often we're not aware of the 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 user experience we create for others on the the boldness that we'll have to pursue ideas um our willingness to pursue ideas because we think our boss is actually not going to cover our back when we go to that meeting with the the boss's boss or we think they'll probably pull resource because there's something coming on the horizon you you have to be a leader with integrity who's going to say we're going on this journey we have no choice we're going to have to make some hard choices but um Trust me. <laughs> and that's really hard sometimes when you're coming from a, a, a place where innovation really hasn't been front and center and people's attempts to do new things have been frustrated at every turn. So it, it's a journey. But I think one of the most important things you can do to build overall confidence that this thing matters, that it's OK to try this, even if I fail, um, I'm in a safe space to do it if I, as long as I'm doing it well. It's that leadership owning both the delivery of today and the design of tomorrow simultaneously. Okay, wonderful. So listen, I, I get that um, a little bit like fun, if you if you have organized fun, um, then it can be much more productive and ultimately more fun. And I'm sure organized innovation 
for what you've told me so far, um, has much better results as well. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued about the fact that you teach entrepreneurship, Elvin. Um, how much of that can be taught versus how much of that is about inherent skills, inherent mindsets of, of, of folk that want to you know, want to do their own thing? Can, can you really learn everything you need to learn to become an entrepreneur? Well, I really hope so, because I'm, I'm right in the middle of designing a course <laughs> <laughs> for that so that people can do just that thing. But not it's, and what I've learned, it's not just a, a course isn't enough. It's got to be I'm, I'm more these days talking about uh, rather than training, I'm talking about activations because the training is just start is, is day one of, of the journey. I'm interested in what happens on day 30, day 100 and day 300. And so anyway, I'm putting together something that people can go through this. So I'm very confident that you can teach people um, entrepreneurial skills. Now, I would say there are people who just have instincts around entrepreneurship. And you see serial entrepreneurs like Richard Branson and you know many others, and they just kind of have it in them. They can see what others miss. They have a, a nose for opportunity and what's going to work and what's not. And, you know, that, that's great. You know, there are people, there are people out there like that. But ultimately, if, if you zoom out from what's really going on in their world is they are, well, one, they're identifying opportunities and they're, they're looking at what's coming from the future. They're looking at how today shows up and they're seeing what's going to be missing in two years time. You know, what trends are going to shape the way that we currently do things so that they'll be done better. So what new technologies might we want to invest in? Or what social trends are coming together? So there's going to be a new demographic of people who are hungry for this new thing. This new thing doesn't exist yet, but you can see there's going to be something in that space that, that they'll want. Um, and that there are systematic tools that anyone can learn around customer insight, you know, trends, uh, uh, prediction, um, horizon scanning, scenario planning. A lot of these things exist out there, but they're not common practice inside organizations outside of, say, the strategy or futures team, if you have one. And actually, I think they're really healthy tools for every team to have. So we can always be asking questions that force us to define reality at any point in time. And, and really, it's three questions. It's what's coming? What does it mean? What should we do? And there are tools under, under each one of those questions that can really help us get more confident in our ability to predict which opportunity should we invest in, which threats matter most, and then you know how, how do we respond? So I absolutely think that you can you can teach people to do. I mean, this is why I teach it on, on an MBA program. There's a couple of MBA programs that I teach on. And um, you see people doing it, you know, in the space of a, of a few days, you can see the penny dropping because you're just giving them frameworks and lenses to look through, which they just haven't looked through before. So I think, yes, certainly some people do have an instinct for it, um, but I definitely think it can be taught. OK, wonderful. Now, then, as part of my homework, Elvin, um, I found a fairly long but impactful quote from you. I think this was on LinkedIn. In, uh, and it goes as follows. And then there's a question at the end. OK, it goes as follows. Uh, leaders in highly innovative companies don't just tell employees that they have permission to innovate. They also deal in reality and create the context in which it can actually happen. And that always starts with creating sufficient time to work on new ideas, not expecting people to start a new evening job. The level of resourcing we can collect to innovation is an indicator of how seriously we are taking the future. That doesn't necessarily mean throwing away 
a lot of resources and innovation, though. It's a matter of prudence. What is the right amount of investment to explore the strategic questions that tomorrow is asking of us today? Okay, that's the quote. Here's the question. Mm -hmm. How much time should employees get to innovate? And can you break that down in terms of what that would look like? So, for example, number of hours per week or how those hours would be split by certain types of activities? Because I feel that would be very helpful for our HR and leadership audience. Sure. Well, I would say there's no one size fits all for this. It's all down to the speed of scope, uh, speed and scope of change in, in any industry. And some move faster than others. You know, if you're in high tech or if you're in gaming, that's moving really fast. So you would want people to be spending more time on innovation than perhaps something like oil tankers. <laughs> you know, things are changing, but it's not moving quite so fast. So um, it, it is contextual. It does depend. There, there is a rule of thumb out there that I find helpful as a starting point, but not necessarily an anchor point, because you probably want to move to a place that's relevant to your industry. And that is, it's a 70-20-10 split. So 70% of your innovation focuses on the day-to-day. -day. It's incremental. It's known cause and effect. If we do this, there will be this improvement because we're, we're just working on the business. We're working on the organization. And it makes sense to make today better because it's going to keep moving for a while. However, we do know that sooner or later, most industries get disrupted. Um, and those who are only focusing on incremental innovation are usually the ones that we say goodbye to. So we've got 70% looking at today. The other end of the telescope, we've got 10% looking of our resource looking at futures what gets called horizon three so horizon one is short term horizon two medium term horizon three is, is long term things that are showing promise that there could be technology or ways of working or new things that will if we run experiments and we, we try them out they're probably going to fail so we don't want to spend a lot of money there but we should be doing something because sooner or later that future will show up and we don't want one of those you know, those Star Wars moments where suddenly all of the, the, the enemy ships arrive from hyperspace. It's like, whoa, where did they come from? Well, maybe we should have been running some experiments from the future. So there's 10% highly likely to fail, but somewhere in there, there will be some gold. So there's a whole way of working around that. And in the middle, you've got ideas that have made it out of that 10% space that are showing some promise that we're wanting to scale, that we're wanting to develop. And that's that's the entrepreneurial space, really. So as a rule of thumb, how you split your time might be that, but then how much time do you, do you spend on it? Before I answer that question, there's a, a really important thing to recognize, which we, we sometimes skip over, which is asking the question, how much time do we need, not how much time do we have? And that's usually the way we look at it. It's, well, um, I spend 110% of my working day doing the day job. So I suppose, um, given that the average amount of time people spend on, at work now is 120% of their capacity, I've got 10% left, which is, you know, minus half an hour a week. Um, and, and that's kind of the reality view of, but actually it's not dealing in reality at all. We still need to innovate. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're clear on if that future that we want to inherit or create is going to show up, let's just be real about what it's actually going to take. Let's not kid ourselves. We're not, we may not know the answer to how we're going to find that time. But if we don't find that time, sooner or later, we're dead or we're, you know, we're dying fast now. So it's starting with reality. How much time do we need? Not how much time do we have? Can we stuff this around the edges? Because then people are just not doing their best work. They resent it. It's late at night when the kids are in bed. Just not 
a great way to do innovation. So where do you get started? I always say to every team, because in time is usually the biggest blocker to innovation, make that the first target for your innovation. How are we going to find more time? And there's all sorts of things you can look at there. There's, there's lots I put in the book around this, around how do we think, how do we run experiments around different types of meeting, you know, so that because that's the biggest time eater. How do we find, run experiments around different ways of communicating, particularly email, another big time eater? How do we work in different ways so that we don't keep interrupting each other one, uh, so much? Another big time eater. So you're looking at what are the things that rob us of most time? How can we apply the principles of innovation to those so that we can create time so that we can actually get on and do the stuff that we need to do now from a from a standing start i would say to any team just start where you can if that's half an hour a week just start with half an hour a week and that may not feel like very much but you're just starting the mindset shift to this matters and in that half an hour i'm going to do this and i'm going to move something along a little bit now half an hour isn't going to get you very far but it's just starting the process and then from there being deliberate about asking the question well how much time do we need um are actually we're going to are we going to need to go and ask for more headcount because if we want to be really you know business savvy about this boss you're asking us to go here it's going to take this we've cut back as far as we can but we still can't get there. What do you suggest? Because for us, it feels like either we make some choices around what we can innovate or we're going to need to go and find some more resource. What do you want to do? Rather than living in denial and, and just imagining we're going to shove it in around the edges somewhere because it never shows up. And if it does, it, it fails because we can't do it properly because we haven't got enough time. So some of this for me is really about are we over resource, under resourcing the whole organization, running on empty, you know, it's just barely staying alive. Well, it's, that doesn't sound like a winning strategy to me. So there's a, there is a reality check here, I think, around how much time work can people actually do in a day, including innovation, rather than putting innovation around the edges. So I think start where you can, but be in pursuit of moving up to the amount that you need, but start with innovating on time itself. I completely agree. Unless you live in Egypt, you should not be living in denial. Okay, let's continue through. Oh, um, my goodness. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Um, hey, hey, Elvin, you've got a fairly new book. It was 2020, I think. Um, I'd love now for you to take a couple of minutes and tell our listeners about Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People. Yeah, well, I wrote it for two audiences, really. The first was for leaders trying to help answer the question in really practical terms you know how do you with the how of innovation how do you turn this on and then how do you turn it up so how do we create simple systemic never goes away innovation so what are the metrics that hold it in place as well as all the other things that we've talked about today so first of all a practical handbook for leaders to actually get started with this regardless of their background and the second really was the talent um, space where I, I often get asked to come in and speak on or design leadership programs, specifically innovation leadership programs to help talent, you know, design and run culture of innovation around them. And I was finding myself quite frustrated at the end of these modules because I'd go in and, and run it and people would get quite fired up and keen to go back to the office and, and, and get started. And I knew what would happen next because they were kind of in this bubble while they were away on their training program and then they go back to reality and people haven't been on the same journey 
there's the same meetings, there's the same mindset, there's the same email, and, and gradually it wears you down. So I kind of wanted to write a a practical guerrilla warfare book for, for these people to go back to the office to, to show them when this happens, try this. And it really is that level of book. It's try this. Now, at this point, say this. At this point, send this email because it, or something like it because it, it'll probably help and do you good. So um, really written to be a practical, because tons of great innovation books out there. Don't get me wrong. You know, why does the world need another one? Because I found that a lot of those great books are quite academic. They're quite aimed at the innovation, techie, startup lab population. Not everyday business people who are still under the same pressure to deliver innovation. So it's it's really written for business people trying to get innovation done. Awesome. Thank you very much. Okay, we are coming towards the end of this particular conversation, Elvin. Uh, we do have a couple of questions for the HR in Review pod that we ask of all of our guests. Okay. Uh, the first one is as follows. If you could pass on one crucial lesson that you've learned in your career in one minute or less, what, Bill? That's impossible. Um, what would be your top tip for HR pros or, or leaders or both? I think in regards to innovation, I think train as many people as possible in how to design and run tiny experiments for new ideas. The reason for that is it massively lowers the stakes of taking the first step with a big idea. If the first step I have to take with any idea is, well, is you've got to run a 50K pilot. Suddenly there's lots of politics around 50K. There's lots of meetings around 50K. Whereas if the first meet, if the first step of an idea is to run a tiny test, to test the assumptions that whether this idea is even going to work, and I'm going to spend 50 quid or 500 or $50 or $500, the stakes for that are much lower. So everybody's more confident to take the first step. And also executives are more confident in sponsoring ideas because you unlock this kind of pay-as-you-go innovation. We want a tiny experiment. The data came back and said this. Okay, so now let's unlock a little bit more budget because the data says that's, that's going to be a strong thing to do. And, and at some point we may kill it, but we're not spending tons of money up front, which paralyzes people's confidence in trying new things. So it's the one thing I've seen in the innovation space that absolutely changes the game in every environment I've been in. When people's first step towards a bold idea is a tiny experiment, everything changes. Great answer. Way over one minute, Elvin, but that's okay. It was a great answer. <laughs> so we're, 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 we're going to forgive you. Uh, I'll give you a bit more time for the next one. Um, and the next question is, what is the single biggest change that you think will happen in HR and leadership over the next five to 10 years? So I think if we think about this in relation to leadership and innovation, I look at technology like artificial intelligence and the level of automation that unlocks. And then the knock-on effect of that is actually a lot of commoditization of the things that got us to where we are today. So I'm doing some work with a law firm at the moment. So much of their world is now being automated because you can teach AI some rules around law and it can figure a lot of stuff out. So the question that um, leaders are going to have to grapple with more and more is the ultimate question of why us? Why do we matter and why will we continue to matter? Because relevance is not automatic. It, it's a choice. We can pursue differentiation, um, but we have to be deliberate about it. And, and I think the the idea of innovation as a source of competitive advantage 
sounds like this kind of worn out old cliche, but so few companies have actually grabbed hold of it and decided, yeah, we want to be relevant in one year, three years, five years. And that means we have to be deliberate about systemically embedding innovation. It has to be one of the most um, it has to be one of our superpowers, really, to coin a phrase that, that gets used a lot these days. Um, so if if leaders choose not to amplify the innovation performance of their organization right across the board, both on what we do and how we do it, I think we're going to find lots of companies crashing and burning faster than we might have imagined because there are so many small companies scaling super fast in every industry. Um, because they they are choosing relevance and they're they're bending industry rules and finding ways around things that other organisations haven't been able to find. So that pursuit of differentiation, I think, is going to be the key. Perfect. And just finally for this particular conversation, Elvin, how can our listeners connect with you? So maybe that's email address. Maybe you want to share your LinkedIn. Maybe you're really cool and you're all over TikTok. And also, how can <laughs> they learn learn more about uh, all of your co- co- courses that you do and and your business? Yeah, so elvinturner.com is the um, the website. You can contact me through there. There's some links to to contact me directly. Uh, LinkedIn, there's not too many Elvin Turners out there. There's especially not many Elvin Turners who have written books about zombies. So you'll find me fairly easily on there. Actually, just Google. You can normally find me fairly easily on Google. Excellent. And uh, we got through this whole interview, Elvin, without uh, mentioning to our listeners that uh, you're an Ipswich fan and I'm a Norwich fan. Um, and that's because we're pros and we still managed to do this. Uh, he, he's all right, listeners, despite being a blue, despite being a track boy, he's all right. Um, hey, Elvin, that just leaves me to say for this particular interview, thank you very much. I've learned a lot. I, I think our listeners will learn too. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Bill. It's been a real pleasure. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.